The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Monstrous Regiment, featuring a roundtable of Dominion women seeking to honor Jesus Christ in applying God's Word fearlessly and faithfully in all callings and seasons of life, both in and out of the home, reversing the curse and smashing pagan strongholds. Welcome back to the Monstrous Regiment. I know it's been a while. Um, obviously, I don't need to tell any of you that in the United States and to an extent the whole world, we're experiencing a cultural moment that is totally unlike any in recent history. Not unlike any in history, but in recent history. And it's stirring up a lot of different feelings and discussions. Um, some people are afraid or angry or hurting or excited or hopeful or feeling like they're just now waking up, or a combination of all these things. So um, I wanna have a discussion about some of this. Some of us have the luxury of paying attention to the things that are going on in the national news, when they're in the national news, and when they're being shared on social media, because they're being shared on social media. Um, but for others, this isn't news at all. It's a, it's a reality that they have to cope with and live with for their entire lives for generations. Um, so whatever the case, there are a lot of different kinds of hot takes out there, some better and some worse than others. So how are Christians looking at these events? And more importantly, how should we be looking at and responding to them? That's the question that we want to ask today. And joining me to help answer some of these questions is Shatoya Bradley. She's a writer, um, an editor, a designer, a creator of truly beautiful, spectacular fashion, and um, we're just very delighted that she's agreed to talk to us today. Hello, Shatoya. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited about um, being a part of the show today. Thanks for coming. So let's just jump right in. Um, can you just start by giving us a little bit of information about your background, both your personal background and, and your experience in the church and evangelicalism? Sure, um, so I'm originally from South Georgia, um, lived there um, all of my life until um, I got married at 19 to my high school sweetheart and he went in the Air Force and so we traveled around um, stationed at various different um, bases and um, you know really got a chance to really in my opinion uh, experience life with get, getting to know different people from all walks of life different cultures and stuff like that so um, as far as the church, I was, uh, I was raised in a church. Um, my stepdad was a Baptist minister. So um, church was just like a normal part of my life. Every Sunday and during the week, Bible studies and choir practices and youth, um, youth group and stuff like that. So, um, you know, my husband and I, uh, one of the things that I really enjoyed about traveling uh, while he was in the Air Force is that we got to be a part of so many different uh, types of churches because mm -hmm. for me, I grew up in a all-Black Baptist church. So um, the only culture I knew as far as uh, within the church was, you know, what I grew up in. So we got a chance to um, join different churches that were a lot more um, uh, ethnically diverse and 
the music and everything was different. So that really helped to give us a better understanding of what Christianity looked like, looks like in America. Um, and we still have friends that we, you know, that we made from all of these different states that we um, had an opportunity to live in. So, um, yeah, it, well, I guess I'll mention about um, my husband and I have been married for almost, I think 19, yeah, almost 19 years. Um, we have six kids, uh, five boys and, and one girl. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. Where does the girl fall in the mix? She's the, she's actually the youngest. Oh my goodness. Good yeah. for her. Yeah. Oh, and I do want to mention, um, so growing up, I, I have, let's see, three, four brothers, not four, three. Yeah. I'm getting mixed up. <laughs> no, with my I know. Family. I'm from a big family. three too. brothers, two older and one younger. Okay. Awesome. Okay. So, um, that's kind of cool. I had a, not not an exactly same experience, obviously, but I was in the military for a while. So I, and I lived in that, in the Savannah area back okay. in uh, 2000 or 2001, somewhere around there. Um, but yeah, I had a, a similar experience with traveling around at different bases and different sort of church environments. But yeah. So you have a pretty impressive resume as far as the, the work that you're involved in. Um, let's talk about your fashion design. I was looking at your website. It's amazing. Why is, why, what got you into fashion design and why is that meaningful to you, um, in general and as a black woman? Well, you know, I've always loved fashion. Like one of my nicknames, uh, when I was in high school, um, was Skittles because, I would come to school and I would always have these dresses or outfits on with like all of these colors. And um, I think it, for me, it originated from my love for to collect flowers when I was younger. I um, kept like a, a notebook of all these different flowers that just stood out to me whenever I was outside playing. And so I would keep a book of them with, and then I would look up everything about them, the, the scientific name and um, what type of climate they grew in or state, you know, what states they were uh, native to and things like that. So I've always had a love for um, colors and patterns and, for me, it was a way for me to express myself. And I think that um, that tends to be true within um, Black culture. I think part of it is because um, when you look at the history of African-Americans in America, our culture was taken away from us. And then the, the, when you look at um, cultures around the world, African-American African or Black culture around the world, you see color, vibrant colors and patterns. So it's like a way of, um, of us expressing ourselves. And I think in America, you may see it in a more um, bold, uh, in a bolder way because there's been so much suppression of our culture and um, us being taught that, um, you know, our hairstyles or the way we um, dress or carry ourselves, doesn't fit in with the dominant culture. Mm -hmm. So for me, fashion is, is a way for me to be able to express 
who I am culturally. And, um, you know, I guess because in a sense, too, I'm kind of a rebel. I I like to stand out. So, uh, yeah. Good. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I know we were chatting about that a little bit um, before this, about how sort of one of the subtler ways that, that white supremacy, um, you know, expresses itself is in this, this unspoken ideal of behavior of dress that like, and where you vary from that is where you're varying from the, the standard. So. Right. And, and that was one of the, one of the issues that I saw was the type of clothing that I wanted, I, I couldn't find in the, in stores especially for me coming from a small town. So um, I started to realize it's because uh, in dominant culture, um, you know, they're mainly sticking to the grays and blacks and, you know, really the kind of like safe colors. Um, That's me. I'm uh, all blue. <laughs> I remember in, in the workplace, you know, you're not – allowed to wear certain colors they you know right. they want you to stick to like a certain color palette and I think it's you know I don't know if necessarily they realize that they're kind of um you're like undervaluing people or um forcing them to suppress who they are culturally because it's something that's frowned upon or that it's it's not accepted within society so right that was one of the reasons I, I set out to create fashion that people aren't finding in, um, uh, in soup, not supermarkets, but in um, malls or, or shopping, shopping areas. So, yeah. Well, I love it. And we will, we'll share your, uh, your website when we share this episode, but on that same note, um, do you have any thoughts on, the difference, so the difference between, I guess, cultural appreciation and cultural appropriation when it comes to uniquely black fashion. Right. Well, I think that um, it's a very touchy subject for some people. Like, I mean, even in the black community, there's some people who they don't have an issue with someone someone wearing something that. I guess would traditionally be thought of as um, strictly um, like African or African garb or something like that. But I do think that there's a way to, um, to show appreciation for other cultures without it being looked at in a, um, in a way that suggests that you're, um, I don't know, I guess in a sense to where it's looked at as your, um, it's like some sort of token or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, so I think that. Um, like the, like the, uh, the kneeling in Congress a couple weeks ago. Right. I, I took the issue with that because I didn't, I didn't feel that it was genuine. Right. But from when I read from their perspective, apparently there were, um, others within the National Black Caucus that encourage them to do that. So I think that's that's where even with everything that's going on in America, you have different um, African Americans that see things differently. Yeah, 
so, so for me point that it's not a monolith right right for me um the situation with them wearing the um the african um um attire that they had on i just felt that it was political mm-hmm. so i think that if i think anytime somebody is doing something and it's the the motivation is political there are going to be people that are going to take issue with it or if um like i've seen where people will wear um african um type uh, i'll say like cultural attire but then it becomes like it's a a a photo op or you know they're doing it for to see if they can get attention or something like that i think people will notice that and then they'll take an issue with that but if somebody is just uh, appreciating um cuz i look at fashion as art so yeah. if if i'm the t- if you're the type of person where you're wearing something because it it appealed to you you like it and i don't see a i don't see an issue with that Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's helpful, yeah. especially because I definitely want to buy one of the bags on your site. Yeah. <laughs> the colors are just gorgeous. Yeah. I love your use of color. Um, so obviously your experience as a black woman, as a black business owner, um, as a member of the church, mm-hmm. didn't start last month when this sort of cultural moment started. Um, so are you able to give us some insight into your experience um, in the way that you've been treated in the way that in, in some of the issues that you've seen before this sort of moment happened? Well, so I think I'm going to share probably something that um, a lot of people didn't know about me as far as my background. So for all of my adult life, I was a, um, a, I guess, as they would describe it, I was a staunch uh, Republican, conservative Republican. Okay. So, um, and, a, and a part of that experience, um, I used to be the managing editor of a, um, of a, a more so political news um, media website. And so... Um, I was essentially being groomed as Candace Owens before there was a Candace Owens. So, yeah. <laughs> um, which is crazy when I think, when I think back on it now, but um, what happened was the, the guy that I was working with and he's been on Fox news like numerous times, but I knew going into before president Trump was elected, that there were things about him that I just, um, that just didn't sit well with me. And so I would bring up those issues to him and um, he initially felt the same way. But as as we got closer to the election, I started to see kind of like a shift in in how he talked about um, Trump and, and so it, for me as a Christian and and he was a profession uh, Christian as well. It just, you know, the Holy spirit just really started to convict me about a lot of it. And I noticed that once I brought it up to him, it was no longer about um, 
following your convictions, but it seems as if he was really just trying to follow us and push a certain narrative. And so he was beginning to compromise on what he had shared with me that he believed. And I was in a position where I had to decide, um, do I want to continue in this as a career or um, is this, am I, do I feel like I'm in a position where I'm going to have to compromise on what I believe as a Christian in order to continue um, being engaged the way that I was in the Republican Party? So um, I ended up leaving, but um, it was a really, like, nasty uh, situation, like me leaving. And um, uh, he, he started spreading a lot of rumors about me becoming a liberal and, and, and all these things, so, which is like, okay, whatever. But um, so, yeah, so after that, I took about maybe – two or three years from just any type of political engagement. I just, I took the time to step back and um, uh, befriend people who believed different than I did. And, um, you know, I really thank God for that um, experience because it allowed me to, to take the political, um, talking points out of it and just and instead of putting people in a liberal or conservative box I had a chance to just get to know people and see uh, what really spoke to their hearts as far as what they're seeing in in society Um, and from that I really grew to appreciate um, and and gain a better understanding of what the Bible says about um, how politics and and really things in society should reflect our faith. And so, um, yeah, so here I am now, you know, I I thank God for so many of the people that I've met through um, uh, the level-headed reconstructionist group and they just, I feel like God just used them to really just open my eyes up to such a, a, a better understanding of um, uh, the gospel and how it um, how it should influence our political action. Right. Right. Yeah. And and not vice versa. It seems like. Right. Um, it seems like a lot of people have that. That'll probably resonate with a lot of people because. Right at least in my experience, obviously, you know, I can't speak to the experience of a person of color, but um, in my experience with women, it's like, you can, you can be perfectly acceptable. Like with your, your experience with the, the uh, Republican activism, you can be perfectly acceptable in evangelical and in Republican circles as long as a woman, as a person of color, as long as you're towing the party line. And then as soon as you start to challenge that, it's like, it's so I guess what I'm saying, I've met a lot of people who have said that they never experienced sexism or never experienced racism in the church. And it's like, well, it's, it's not necessary to express those things as long as you're 
saying and doing the things that you're supposed to be saying and doing. But as soon as you vary from that at all, that's when you start to notice it, you know? Yeah. And that's exactly what happened because a lot of our, we, we, my husband and I um, had close relationships with a lot of our uh, church family from our church in Montana in which we were the only, uh, we were, yeah, we were the only black family in the church. And so at that time we were conservatives. And so, but as we started to drift away from where we started to, to see there were certain things within um, conservative, conservative ideology that just wasn't um, shaped by, by a gospel um, mm-hmm. perspective. And so as we started to kind of discuss those things, the relationships that we had with um, some of our white Christian friends and family, uh, you know, it changed. And that really, that really hurt and affected us because um, just like you said, it was as if um, like we were accepted as long as we were the black conservatives. But as soon as we start to say, well, you know what, on the issue, when it comes to um, justice or racism, we're noticing this or that. And then it's just like, oh, you're a, a cultural Marxist or critical race theory. And it's just, they start just, um, instead of us being able to have like meaningful dialogue as Christian brothers and sisters, it became where it's like a liberal versus conservative type of thing. And yep. um, that, I mean, we get nowhere. And I think I mentioned that before that it's like these things happen in our nation, like what's happening now and people start to respond the same ways. And it's just like, well, how do we, how do we get past the politicalness of it, of it all and get to the gospel part of it all? And how do we, as, as, as white Christian brothers, um, and sisters, black Christian brothers and sisters, how do we work together so that we're an example to the world versus us being in the background, kind of hashing it out while the world is just coming up with all of these different solutions that don't involve the gospel. Right. Right. Absolutely. I know we're going to touch on that um, more in just a minute. And I am really looking forward to that because that's so important. The, the, the flesh and blood versus powers and principalities, tribalism thing. Right. Um, so I don't, I hate even asking this question because it feels like even having to ask it is like 20 steps behind where we should be. But right. what, what do you say to pe- white people who try to tell you or black people that um, systemic racism isn't real? And how do you define systemic racism? Okay, so the way, I think the best way to describe it would be to think of racism in terms of, like we know when it comes to racism, most of the time people are associating it with a feeling. Yeah. Somebody um, either looks at another person based on their skin color and says that that person is um, less than in some way Uh, or another right but um systemic racism 
involves power. So if your racism is able to be enforced through laws and practices and procedures, then that's where that's where I would define it as systemic racism, where um, when we look at um, the 13th Amendment that was supposed to abolish slavery, um, or ab- abolish shadow sh- slavery, but when you look at the exception, they made an exception to it when it, when it comes to um, prison labor. And so you see from, the, from that point how it was systematically um, a, a system that targeted um, uh, locking up black men. You know, they came up with ways to uh, criminalize acts just that are just, uh, when you look at them at face value, it's just insane. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you see, you see from uh, whether it's the prison industrial complex or education, housing, um, jobs, there were um, practices and systems and policies put in place to oppress Black people um, in ways, and then some of those systems are still in existence today. So one thing that I do find interesting that I would um, bring up to white, um, I guess to white people is the fact that, especially white Christians, um, it seems as if racism is the only sin that they view as not needing to be repented of. Right. You know, like there's, there's nothing, there's nowhere in American history that we can look back and point and say, okay, the, the, the white church responded in these ways concerning the racism that the churches participated in during um, slavery and um, Jim Crow. Like there was no, um, there was no acknowledgement of it. So with that being said, how did, how did it just disappear? Yeah. You know, if it's, if it's never been something that the church has actively dealt with, I'm not sure how they would say that it is something that doesn't exist. Yeah. It's almost like the, uh, the sort of classic abuser response where it's right. like always turning the focus to the victim being more forgiving and letting it go right. instead of ever acknowledging the, the right that happened. Right. And I think, too, it's um, part of the problem is that so much of, as far as the American church, so much of our views are shaped by politics mm-hmm. versus, you know, by the gospel. So we're, instead of us, instead of our first instinct being, okay, how do I listen to um, this brother or this sister and um, really get an understanding of what the issue is for them. It's like immediately uh, I'm going to come with with black on black crime or abortion. You know these same talking points, and uh, and then that just kind of to me it's like a wall. Yeah. Once they once you once you bring those things up, there there's no no dialogue that's going to happen because. Um, the, the person that you're speaking with is going to get defensive 
And then that's going to put the other person more to, to for, for them to feel like, okay, well, let me bring out even more um, conservative um, talking points so that, you know, and it's like, um, there are, I believe that there are genuinely a lot of us who want to see um, change. We want to see we, we care about the flourishing of all human beings. And we want to see, especially the church, be, be a beacon of light for the world. Um, and I think, I'm, I think we talk, you and I talked about this, but when we look back at the feminist movement, we see that even though, even still today, the church cri- uh, criticizes the feminist movement, but just like with the Black Lives Matter movement, we have to ask ourselves, well, where, where is the church? Why is it that the church is always 10 steps behind? And, um, you know, those who we would say are within secular society are the ones that are, 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 that are attempting to address um, issues that we have the answers to. As yep. if, we're, if, we're, um, following, if we are followers of Christ, we know that the answers to what we see um, going wrong is we're not, um, we're not effectively engaging the culture with the gospel. I'm so sorry, you cut out for just a second. Can I get you oh. to go back just one sentence? <laughs> yeah, I'm saying we like we have the the answer, but we're not effectively engaging the culture with the gospel. Right. And so it's like we're um, we're left to criticize the Black Lives Matters movement or criticize whatever movement it is that attempts to to um, do anything when it comes to solving a lot of the issues we see in society. Yeah, I agree. I mean, yeah, we did, we had talked about this before. It, I agree. It's like it's like we're experts at throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Right. And sometimes there's not even sometimes there's not even that much to throw out. And it's like, it's like the Bible tells us to correct oppression. And every time someone tries to correct oppression, the church's response to that is to deny that the oppression exists because they don't like the way that it's being corrected. Right. Right. Um, so you, you touched on this already, but obviously, you know, monstrous regiment, we have a, a special focus on women's issues in the church. Do you have any thoughts on how being black and being female intersects in a way that someone like me wouldn't have thought about? Well, I think for, um, for one, maybe um, there's, there's a lot of, of black women that contributed to addressing um, uh, like women's rights in America, but nobody really like they're they're not really recognized as um as far as what the the role that they played in advocating for um women's um rights as far as like voting and mm-hmm. and things like that um but i think that it's there's a there's a lot that we have in common when you think about what um what white women have have how how they have been treated historically in America, um, as far as the, the way that they were viewed as second class and um, they were only fit to 
um, be at home and um, um, education was frowned upon when it come, when it came to women. So I think that some of those same um, sentiments are uh, black women have went through in one way or another. And so um, I think maybe the uniqueness is that we didn't have um, primarily white, white women that when they were advocating for women's rights, they weren't including black women. Right. So I think that that's one of, one of the issues that I see is that um, when women think, we think that as women, we, there would be some sort of, um, solidarity. yeah, but there, there isn't. And so it's like, um, sometimes I feel like the women are more hostile. Mm-hmm. White women are more hostile to, to black women than, uh, white men are. So, yeah. Um, I mean, we've seen that. A couple times. I mean, I, I don't know, not necessarily directed specifically at black women, but we've seen a couple times just in the last few weeks, white women sort of weaponizing their right. whiteness against black men in in very horrifying ways. Right. <laughs> not funny, but, um, you know, and it, as I've been trying to educate myself a little bit, it's been interesting to see how, like you said, there should there should have been a solidarity there. Right. And so you see in history, white women trying to um, sort of speak up against their own oppression and at the same time suppress the voices of black women. And you see the patriarchal mindset of men trying to suppress the voices of women, including black men trying to suppress the voices of black women, you know, and it's like, like you said, it all comes back to power and where there's that intersectionality of worshiping power all the women could be joining together and recognizing each other's, you know, joining, joining forces with each other. But every time we get a chance to like exert our own power over another group, we do. Right. And then you see the, the solidarity that we do see is in the the modern feminist movement. Mm -hmm. Um, So again, which still, leaves the question where well where are the women in the church you know why why don't we have um solidarity the same way we see the feminist movement today that's advocating for all of these things that we know um aren't necessarily um gospel um gospel solutions it's like they're the, they've gone to the extreme where many of them hate men in general. And so their, their approach is just to um, attack men and um, to make it as if um, all men uh, exhibit uh, toxic masculinity. And so, um, yeah, it's just... Um, I don't know. I just, uh, I just feel like um, there's more that the that we can be doing as um, as Christians, mm-hmm. and I do really, I do feel really hopeful at everything that's ha- currently happening now because I feel like 
there is some progress being made as far as us being able to have like real conversations with with each other and listen to each other and um, just figure out like where do we go from here. I feel hopeful about that too. I I feel like if there's anything I'm afraid of right now, it's that this energy will die down too soon. Yeah, so accept like half measures instead of pushing for the the whole thing, you know. But um, but it does seem like there's advancements being made in the dialogue at least. Right. So just as a disclaimer on this next question for the audience, because I'm trying to listen to various voices and be sensitive to the things that, that um, people are saying. And I know I've seen several um, black men and women like on social media say, stop asking us this question. So I'm only asking this because it was one of the questions that was on your list that you wanted to answer. So yeah. um, what were your initial thoughts after seeing the now famous George Floyd video and his death at the hands of the Minneapolis police officers? Um, for me, um, I couldn't even make it through the, the entire video initially because it, it was just so emotional for me. Uh, I mean, part of it was, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Yeah. And then the other part of me was just like, how many times have I seen something like this before? You know, and for me, I have five sons. Right. So uh, when I finally did watch it and just hearing him um, call out to his mother, it just, um, I mean, I, I didn't know what to say other than just to be filled with, um, with compassion for him because I, I feel like when, when you watch it, you get a sense of, you sense that he knew he was going to die. Yeah. And so, it, you know, he was at that point where he was just saying, um, you know, whatever was on his heart out of fear, just knowing that um, his, his humanity was being taken away from him. And for, for what reason, you know? Right. So for me, it, it, it was, um, it was a lot of emotion, anger, um, frustration. Um, I couldn't help but think about my, my five boys and, um, you know, what we've taught them, but, um, you know, and then there's the, the side of me that was just like, um, there's a police car there. Why, why didn't they, if they have him handcuffed, why not just put him in the, car like what's what's going on here so it's just I think and I think probably for a lot of people it just didn't make any logical sense even if you're looking at it from a perspective of um, what police normally do when they arrest somebody yeah yeah it didn't it didn't make any sense I don't I'm not going to add to your commentary on that because that's um perfect but yeah I I agree So we touched on this a little bit and I'm not even sure. I think I might, I might be more accused of being more liberal than you in my views on this, (laughs) but regarding, so I've seen a lot of stuff regarding the statement, black lives matter. Um, You know, there's a lot of Christians sharing 
articles that are like 10 reasons I can't support the Black Lives Matter movement or whatever, which is, as a friend of mine pointed out, really interesting coming from people who do support Trump and share Tucker Carlson. And, you know, it's like, where, <laughs> where do we suddenly stop caring about that stuff? But um, so what are your thoughts on the slogan, on the statement, on using it in the cultural place that we're at? And is there a difference in your mind between using the statement and supporting the organization that goes by that name? And is it even a problem? Right. So I'll say this, and I hope that um, maybe people that will end up watching this will really listen to what I'm saying. Um, for, I could say for majority of black people, and I, and I could say, and I'll just say for myself, I had never been onto the Black Lives Matter website to even know like in detail what they um, stood for, what they believed or didn't believe. And I think that was the case for a lot of um, Black people. We're just now finding out a lot of their beliefs and about the founders and stuff like that. So um, for me, I initially gravitated or what attracted me was what they were saying. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it, it came out after um, Trayvon Martin um, was murdered. And I think for a lot of Black people, there's, there's no way that we can separate the affirmation Black Lives Matter from what we know has, has happened to Black Americans historically in America. And for most people, that's what they care most about, that it's a way for them to say, um, you know, we know what our grandparents and great grandparents have shared with us, the type of racism and things that they've went through um, over their lifetime. And then they've passed that, those stories down to us. We know that that's one of the things that even with Dr. King, that, that he was trying to say, black lives matter. We matter. Um, we're human beings. We want to be treated and seen as human beings and not judged um, based on the color of our skin and um, not dehumanized. And so I think, yes, when I, when I went and I looked at Black Lives Matter um, organization as far as what's on their website, there's, a ton, there's tons of things that I disagree with. But for me, honestly, I wasn't... Um, I don't financially support um, Black Lives Matter um, the organization, and um, I don't advocate for everything that they um, list on their website as far as what their agenda is. Mm-hmm. But for me, I stand behind the affirmation, and I think that if uh, white Christians t- have an issue with Black Lives Matter the organization, I feel like, well, what's stopping them from... Um, speaking against racial injustice. Why why would you allow what you disagree with in um, Black Lives Matter, the organization, to prevent you from speaking on issues that you know the Bible says that we should? Right. That seems really telling to me when people are more vocal about speaking up against an organization that has some statements they disagree with than they are speaking up against the injustice that the that right. is trying to oppose. Right. Because and I, and, and the way I brought it up, um, 
I spoke to somebody who's uh, a Trump supporter and I said, well, do you, would you say that you um, support everything that President Trump has ever said or done in his life? And, you know, they, from that perspective, they know that um, there are certain things that they, even though I may disagree, there are certain things that they um, like or expect about President Trump. And there's things that they um, probably, you know, they, they won't probably say it, but there are things about him that they dislike. Right. Um, and in, in the same way with Black Lives Matter movement, I, even though I disagree with um, a lot of the tenets or a lot of the things that they advocate for, I do appreciate the fact that they decided that they were going to take a stand for the type of injustice that they saw taking place towards um, Black Americans, um, rather it be at the hands of police or, uh, you know, really or anybody. Um, And so I feel like that's something that I can stand behind. But I do want to mention that I did get a chance to go to a protest um, near where I live. And uh, we live in a a predominantly uh, white um, town. And so for me, it was great to go to a protest and see like I was the minority and hear all these people holding up signs saying Black Lives Matter and I don't understand, but um, yet I stand, you know, with you basically. And I even saw posters that were saying, um, you know, pro-life, um, um, isn't selective, you know? And so it was emotional for me seeing, um, uh, especially in a predominantly white area, seeing so many people come out and they're, they're not there criticizing the Black Lives Matter organization. They, they see that people in their community or people in their, in, in America are hurting, um, right. black people and people of color. And, they know that, um, you know, people often say, well, if I, was, if I was alive back during slavery or civil rights movement, this is what I would have done. Yeah. But I feel like, okay, they're, you're, white people are being presented with that opportunity now. Amen. It's like, okay, what, what are you doing? You know, yeah. what are you doing differently than what you saw done in the past? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Whatever you're doing right now is what you would have been doing then. Right. And, and I mean, it just seems like the statement itself, Black Lives Matter, is so obviously unreproachable. <laughs> you know, right. the lives of Black human beings should be treated like the lives of all other human beings. There's nothing right. to disagree with there. And I will say, too, and this is, this is my personal opinion, I don't represent anyone else here when I say this, but I haven't read everything on the Black Lives Matter website. I've read a little bit of it. I've had seen some people object to it because of some of the things that they say about um, like LGBTQ communities and right. like that. But I'm just going to say Black trans lives do matter. Like I don't right. understand how Christians could even have an objection to that. Right. It doesn't matter what someone, whether someone is like living the way that you think. That's like saying, if people object to saying Black trans lives matter, it's like objecting to saying the lives of, um, you know, 
people who live together before they get married matter. Like it, whatever lifestyle you're living, you're an image bearer of God and life does matter. So if there is disproportionate injustice against black trans human beings because of, you know, their skin color or their orientation or, or whatever, we should be speaking up on their behalf. And if we refuse to, how are we being representative of Christ there, you know? Right. I think that for a lot of people, they, they feel like if they, if they support, like if, if I speak a, a, about the injustice that, um, um, that, that gays or, or transgenders face, then somehow I'm um, like, I'm, I'm accepting of their lifestyle. I think that some people think that, you know, they make it into a, like it's a a either or type thing when isn't, when it isn't. Right. Um, Like you said, we're, we should care about the flourishing of all human beings um, to the glory of God, no matter where they come from uh, or what they've done. Because, you know, one of the things that really um, bothered me recently is like in Atlanta today, they they're having the uh for Richard um Brooks. Yeah. So um the Atlanta Constitution and um some of the various other um news local Atlanta news are um covering it. And you go into the comments and people are just like, What why are we celebrating him? And you know, they they bring up this whole list of things that he's done, and I'm just thinking, um, like it, and then you go into these people's pages and they have scripture and you're just like, something isn't connecting. If, if you're saying that you're a follower of Christ, but you refuse to see the humanity and to see somebody as an image bearer of God, no, regardless of what they've done, the bad decisions that they've made in their life. Um, they're still a human being and they have a mother and a father. And oftentimes they had um, children, a wife. And so it's like we, their families are mourning, regardless of the, the circumstances that led to um, them dying. And, and, you know, certain people feel like certain things are the police are justified in doing um, the things that they do. But I think that that's one of the things that's really, um, especially as a, a parent for me, uh, is really sad to see that we're still dealing with this today where um, people uh, don't value people and just like there's no, um, there's no love for just people and just, just for them just as human beings, you know? Right. It's right. like you're, as soon as some, one of these cases happen, they're looking at looking at this person's background. Did they have a criminal record? Um, what type of pictures do they did they have? Were they um, looking like a thug or or this or that? You know, and it's just like wow, that's I would hate to be on the other end of that. You know, the person yeah. that's being viewed that way. And I think most of us would agree we don't want to be. Uh, we wouldn't want our entire lives to be. Um, you know, all of the bad decisions that we've ever made to be what defines us for the rest of our lives. Right. 
and they're they're totally irrelevant to whether we deserve to be murdered. The craziest thing is that that the default for black people is that they have to prove they were good enough people to not deserve to be murdered. Right. And that's not I mean, anyone who says that that systemic racism and, and white supremacy don't exist, like it's it's insane that that's where we immediately go. Well, I think, and, and I think the fact that their response, the fact that, that a lot of white people respond the way that they do suggests that they know that it exists, mm-hmm. but they just, um, I think it's a combination of they don't know how to address it or um, there's some guilt that's involved in it. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's political, you know, it's, they've, they've politicized it in such a way to where if anybody shows any sort of, um, remorse or expresses any sort of, um, guilt or, um, uh, you know, they feel as if, okay, I'm becoming a, they're becoming a liberal or something. I don't, I don't know. (laughs) It's all all tribalism, but it's like, You, you see admonitions all throughout scripture to like defend the weak and the right. fatherless and the poor and the widow and the the destitute and no no qualifications where you only defend them if they had no sin in their life and they were like right. there's the bible doesn't say that all widows and all right. poor people are totally sinless it right. says defend them because they're vulnerable to injustice, you know? Right. And then we see in scripture where God uses people that have some, what we would consider very questionable backgrounds, yes. you know, but he still redeems um, people with, um, from all walks of, of life. And, um, you know, I think that um, like one of the, I, I saw a recent story about a, um, uh, a young white girl in, I think it was in Ohio. She was the only one that was, pro- she was protesting by herself. I saw that. And did you see that? And she yeah. was, um, and I think the police were like right there, right there. But the way that she was treated, some of her, um, her explanation where she was saying that she was a racist right. in the past. And so this, that was a part of her, um, she said that she acknowledged what she did in the past and she felt that she was a despicable person. She hates the person that she was in, in the past, but she's changed. And this was one of the ways that she wanted to make sure that she spoke up against that type of racism that she herself um, uh, used to, um, you know, participate in and kind of just, so I just thought that, like, wow, um, she's basically, that's basically what it looks like for us when we uh, repent and yeah. turn away. There should be a difference in how we respond to certain things, you know. And the humility to admit that we weren't always perfect. Right. I mean, right. obviously, that, that's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Right. And I look back on some of the views that I had as a staunch Republican in my early 20s right. about women, about um, people of color, about how racism doesn't exist and sexism doesn't right. exist. And I'm like, 
thank God, <laughs> right? You know, that I that he's changed my heart and my mind on these issues. But I would obviously I was very stupid and I was wrong and I said harmful things, you know. And right. we should all have the humility to be able to say that. Right. Same here. Um, so along those lines, what are some of the specific issues that you've seen? I mean, we've already been talking about this, but but some of the ones that we haven't mentioned yet seen in how Christians are responding to matters of racial injustice and, and what would you like to see mainstream Christians, I guess not mainstream, like more Christians doing differently? Um, I would like to see more, um, more conversations, less assumptions. And the reason I say that is because um, I have tons of um, white Christian friends um, that I'm, that I, that I know personally that I'm friends with on Facebook and I have maybe one, yeah, you know, only one that has said anything um, about what's going on right now. So for the most part, they're completely, it's almost as if this happened and then they just disappeared off Facebook. I don't know, but um, and then I did have one friend who I'm not friends with her on Facebook, but she emailed me and it was the most heartfelt um, thing that she could have ever done. Like she, I told her she didn't, she doesn't know how much it meant to me that she took the time to just say, you know what? I don't understand all of this. I don't have all the answers, but what I do know is, this is wrong, and I thought about you and your family and your boys, and my heart breaks for you. And um, she just, just, she just showed that she cared. So to me, it's just like, um, and when it comes to the assumptions, I feel like instead of assuming that every black person that says Black Lives Matter agrees with every point of the Black Lives Matter organization, just ask. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I've, I've told a number of people that instead of assuming things, just ask questions. Ask, if I say uh, systemic racism, ask me what I mean. If I say um, social justice, um, ask me what I mean. Don't assume that my definition of what social justice is, is the same definition as what Al Sharpton says when he's talking about um, social justice. So I think that there needs to be more conversations where we're willing to um, listen to one another. And you know what, those conversations may need to, I think they probably need to happen off of social media. It may mean uh, a phone call or uh, meeting up with somebody to go get coffee or something where it's, um, we have more human interaction because I think that a lot of the issue is probably that we're trying to do too much over social media mm -hmm. and it's a lot easier to, to be behind a, a computer screen and just, you know, sending people insensitive videos or comments as if that's going to, you know, foster any type of, uh, uh, a constructive dialogue so um yeah. it's like everybody yeah, I would definitely like to video triggered right right it's almost as if some people have like a stash of these videos <laughs> it's like okay here's a thomas soul video on 
uh, why uh, systemic racism doesn't exist or, you know, X, Y, and Z. And it's like, okay, um, that shuts down conversation between us. But um, I, I am appreciative of the fact that I have had a few different people that have reached out to me personally and um, asked me for suggestions on books that they can read. And so I've been able to send them um, books that they can read. And then I even said, hey, after you read it, you know, we can discuss um, what you read and, you know, you can give me your thoughts and I can give you your thoughts. So I think that um, there definitely just needs to be more um, maybe um, off, off of social media type of um, dialogue between um, people who really care about what's going on and really want to see solutions come out of this. Yeah. I think, I think um, for when it comes to power dynamics, mm-hmm. and I mean, I say this in myself all the time, that when you're used to being someone whose voice is listened to, your default in every conversation is to um, be the one talking and explaining and, you know, right. opining. And it's like, okay, why don't we just take a back seat and let the people who know what they're talking about talk and listen to what they have to say. We don't always have to enter every conversation like gracing the world with our viewpoint. <laughs> I mean, which I probably have done that in this interview. But, um, no, I, but I think too, like your perspective is important. I think that, um, you know, there are... Um, there are black people out there that have that type of mentality to where it's like, um, I don't want to hear what uh, any white person has to say about X, Y, and Z. But like I said, there are um, some of us who feel like um, we do want to have positive dialogue and we do want to, I think that everybody at their core wants to see our country um, like overcome a lot of this that has been going on for so many um, generations. Like nobody wants to continue to, um, to experience racism or um, to feel like we have to um, continue to validate that we're human or, you know, nobody wants to, to, to live their life in that way. Like that, um, to me, that's not really flirt, be, feeling like you can flourish as a as a human being and be the fullest extent of yourself. Where um, and I think for a lot of people, they don't realize that that's that's what it's like being black in America. We have to, in a sense, kind of switch. Like in in certain contexts, I know I can be this way, but then here I have to. Um, I have to act in a different way, you know, like for my husband, he, you know, he knows that he has to uh, make sure nobody views him as a threat because he's a, yep. he's a big muscular guy. He's bald. He has a beard, but he's the sweetest. I mean, he's the sweetest person in the world, but if somebody is just looking at him, um, they can assume a, a million different things. And um, with his job, he's had the police called on him because people don't, believe that he's who he says he is. So it's just like the reality of living with that every day. It's, um, 
it's hard. So I would say also to have patience yeah. with a lot of uh, black people that they may encounter because you never know what people have gone through. And so it, it may be something that is said or done that just is a trigger for them. And, say, and so they may respond immediately with anger or, uh, you know, whatever, but um, just, just having patience and compassion with people because you never know what they've been through in their life yeah. as far as race. Yeah, that's, that's really good insight. Thank you. Um, along those same lines, you know, you said in this conversation, you said when we were talking previously that a lot of times these things come up the church responds to them the exact same way that it did last time. And we never make any forward progress. So let's, you know, fast forward a few years from, from the moment that we're at right now, what would be some indicators five years from now that, um, that actual meaningful progress has been made? Like what, what change, what would look different? I would say that, um, we would have um, more organ more Christian organizations that are leading the way from a um, a biblical framework, you know, as far as how they're addressing the issues within society. So I think that um, for me personally, I think a lot of that is going to have to be um, what uh, what is taught. So, uh, for example, um, I think that far too many, there are far too many uh, white evangelical Christians that don't have a proper understanding of um, government and what um, constitutes a like legitimate government from a, a biblical perspective. And so I think that instead of, like, there are... I guess, and it may be more, um, I don't want to say libertarian, but um, in a sense, libertarians, like their view of um, of uh, law and justice and all of that is more so uh, biblical, not completely, but um, I, I do think that a lot of the reasons why we have people responding the way that they do when it comes to things that the police are able to get away with, it's because people um, use Romans 13 in such a, like it's just teaching blanket obedience to, to governing authorities. And um, I think, I think that that has a lot to do with why people respond the way that they do. I know racism is involved, but at the same time, it's like, if you have an incorrect view of government, then you're going to excuse certain things, you know, that normally you would be able to see um, aren't in line with, um, you know, a, a biblical orthodoxy. So, um, right. I would say definitely it's, it's going to have to, it, there's going to have to be more taught when it comes to um uh, social justice as well. Yeah. And, you know, they don't have to call it social justice if that's like a trigger word for them, but we need to address, you know, we need to address 
um, injustices in our society and how we are called to respond as uh, Christians. So um, I would say, um, so yeah, so just to reiterate, I would say um, what's being taught. So there has to be a fundamental change in people's understanding of biblical law Mm -hmm. um, and justice, um, what constitutes um, crime and um, the the idea behind locking people in cages and um, is that biblical? Is that restorative? Does that give restitution to victims? So um, I've been able to to have some conversations with people and you know they're hearing these things for the first time. So, but people are receptive. And then the funny thing about with hearing defund the police is it's like the climate is 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 prepared basically yes for the church to be able to address these issues yes absolutely so yeah i would definitely say um a, a change in belief a more biblical understanding of biblical law and justice and how that looks in society and also um uh, and also more um, more organizations that are in the forefront of um, how that is fleshed out in society when yeah. it comes to the law and justice and standing um, up for um, the for fair treatment of all image bearers of God. Yes, amen. Um, and I would say a different um, response. I think that we'll see progress whenever we don't associate our uh, ourselves so much with a political party to where um, we refuse to speak on issues that the Bible calls us um, to speak to. Absolutely, that's what I was. I was just about to say. I think. A, a huge sign of maturity in the church for me would be that we're not triggered by phrases that sound too right. liberal, you know, that we can deal with, right. with ideas, with humility and not freak out because it sounds like some, like the other political party, you know? Right. Like I, one of the things that I learned, that I um, learned from that, uh, I think it was about almost three years that I told you that I took, to just step away from political engagement is uh, to ask questions. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I feel like a part of the way um, politics works, um, nobody's, nobody asks questions. It's just like people say certain things and then we assume that they mean uh, one thing and then we go from there. But I think that if we take time to just, um, to talk with people, maybe in private messages or or whatever, but just to ask, ask people like what what when you when you use this term, what do you what do you mean or what is this? Um, you know, and I think that's just something very just at a basic level I that agree. would um, that would have would cause us to have better dialogue with one another. Yeah, I absolutely agree because I think a lot of dialogue there's a lot of dialogue that doesn't happen in good faith, but a lot of times it's like we take terms that we hear from other people and we redefine them ourselves. And then we insist on having all conversations 
from the premise that our definition is what everyone means, even though we, the original people who used it, meant something totally different by it. But right. Um, so I know we're running long, so just we'll just wrap this up with one last question. And you've already talked about some of this. Um, you know, we want to encourage people to educate themselves mm -hmm. about. Um, and, and not rely too much on, you know, I know some, some black brothers and sisters that I've seen have expressed some exhaustion about being constantly asked to educate us. And, you know, what, as white people are starting to wake up and they're like, oh, this is really bad. Can you explain to me how it's bad? And a lot of black people are like, we've been explaining it for like 300 years. Just read the books we already wrote. <laughs> uh, but that being said, like, what are some things that brothers and sisters in good faith who want to, who want to address this can start doing right now, like on a daily basis to, I guess, to serve and to bless our black brothers and sisters and, and show solidarity, but not paternalism. And, you know, and especially from a like right. these libertarian or theonomist viewpoint. I would say to keep, um, I've been really encouraged by a lot of the things that I've, um, that I've seen, um, you know, like, um, whether it's you or, um, Joel, um, I mean, I can name so many people where I've been so encouraged by the things that they're, um, sharing, um, the, the ways that they're, um, expressing, um, how, why Black Lives Matter to them and why, um, really um you know us valuing one another is so important and how that uh, we're all connected when it comes to um, the gospel and um, i would say definitely um reading which i see a lot of them um as far as the ones that i know a lot of them are already doing um having an understanding of um from a historical uh context uh systemic racism and um, the uh, racism in the housing industry, um, education. So I would say uh, definitely having um, probably engaging. Well, I wouldn't just say, well, I'll say this. I think that um, from my perspective, the best thing that they can do is to engage other white people because if 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 they're in if they're in solidarity with us then we already know that they are right. so the best thing that they can do is to keep um in a sense like going against the culture and um so that people know okay um the, here's a here's a here's a white brother or sister who um, is standing in solidarity with um, other Christian, black Christian brothers and sisters, and here's why why they're standing. You know why they're doing what they're doing. It, this isn't political. Um, I think that maybe um, uh, having opportunities where they share why they're doing why they're doing what they're doing, um, because I think that we can get to where we're trying to address the culture, but we're not sharing the fact that we, we do this because of the gospel. 
Right. So, right. you know, this isn't a political um, thing. A performative. So, right, right. We're doing this because of the gospel. So, um, to be honest, I, I'm really encouraged by what I've been seeing. I, and I'm just hoping that we continue to see more um, um yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged because, like I said, there are people that have been reaching out to me about books that they can read. And so I've been able to share that with them. Um, and um, if you have, a, oh, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. I was going to say, if you have a list that you, that you typically send to people that you want me to um, add on the, on the post when we put this episode up, I can definitely do that so people have a quick resource list yeah yeah because I, I yeah because I think that most of the progress that I've seen has come from people um understanding historically things that have happened that they had no idea um happened and then that starts to change people's um understanding and their perception of certain things so yeah uh, I've been reading stamped from the beginning and it is blowing my mind. <laughs> I'm like, right. I thought I understood some stuff, but this is like so illuminating. Right. And there's, and I mean, I, that's one great thing about um, uh, the internet, you know, people have access to so much more um, uh, information now. So um, I don't know. I think that this is going to continue to kind of um, get the ball rolling as far as like progress. Um, but at the same time, we know that there's going to be, you know, some um, uh, secular solutions when it comes to what's going on that are going to be problematic as well. And so we'll have to be able to um, address those as well, you know, yeah. as they come up. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Toya. It has been just such a pleasure having you here. I really appreciate it. And um, and I think yeah, thank you for reaching out to me. And uh, you know, I really enjoyed um, being able to talk about this with you. Thanks. Me too. Um, thank you for listening. This has been the Monstrous Regiment. Thank you for listening to the Monstrous Regiment. We hope this podcast inspires and equips you to go and exercise dominion for Christ's kingdom. Terrible as an army with banners. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ 
and his kingdom.